rather than suggest that she had helped build his career or helped build those genres, she was just being kind of squeezed back down. Oh, this is this is the way that Harrison is like Hitchcock, rather than flipping that script, right, and saying, well, no, this is the way that uh, Harrison helped brand Hitchcock. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. How did you break into old Hollywood? In this episode, we'll tell two stories of unusual ways into the industry. One of the first woman producers who got her start answering a classified ad placed by a Mr. Hitchcock, and a teenager in the 1930s who went from home movies to an Academy Award. Plus, there may not be film festivals, but one film blogger has an idea for keeping community alive. But first, make sure you never miss your big break to listen to Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. Just this past week, both Cinecon in Los Angeles and Pordenone in Italy canceled their film festivals, taking them online virtually. These are the latest in a series of cancellations that deprive the vintage film community of the chance to get together as a like-minded tribe in person. But old movie enthusiasts are finding ways to keep that sense of community going through COVID-19, virtually. That's part of what drew me to the 2020 edition of blogger Raquel Stetcher's Summer Reading Challenge at her blog Out of the Past, which encourages others to read and blog about movie books. Actually, what mainly caught my eye was that of the six books she used to illustrate the blogging challenge, I'd spoken to two of the authors, Alan K. Rohde on Michael Cortez, and the one featured in the very next segment in this episode. I spoke to Raquel Stetcher at her home near Boston. I started this summer reading challenge, which is specifically to classic film books, in 2013. And the whole goal of it was um, I talked to a lot of classic movie fans who collected books and never got around to reading them. They would just, you know, collect dust on the shelves. I resemble Um, that remark. (laughs) So I figured I I really wanted to do something sort of like a book club, but book clubs can be difficult because then there's just one book assigned and then some Sometimes people feel like it's homework because there is a deadline (laughs) and you have to read the book by the end of the month and you have to make notes and, you know, discuss. And I I find a lot of people fail on that front unless you're like super motivated to the book club format. So I figured instead, why don't instead of just being like a month, why don't I spread it over the summer? And I encourage people to read of their own choosing up to six classic film books. I thought this was great. And the way um, it works is that you sign up for the for the challenge. You pick your own classic film books. And I have some criteria on the website about what um, a classic film book is. Um, 
And if you have to read and review and reviewing online is the way you prove that you actually read the book. Right. So you can <laughs> review on your blog, on Goodreads and Instagram. That's mostly where people review. And then if you do read um, all six books that you chose um, and review them by the deadline of September 15th, you're automatically entered to um, win a prize. And usually the prize is a single DVD from the Warner Archive collection, and you can pick whichever movie you'd like. Um, and I send that along, and I just choose um, a handful of winners. So just because you cho you won, you 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 read all six books doesn't necessarily mean you won, um, but it changes. Sometimes I'll have anywhere between four to six winners. Um, so yeah, that's the challenge, and I get like a good anywhere between twenty to forty participants every year. So are these people that you've met in real life ever, or is it purely an online thing? It is an online thing, but it did. It was inspired by the TCM Classic Film Festival. Um, I had gone the first time in 2013, and I met a lot of my online friends there. And a lot of them um, were shopping at Larry Edmonds Bookshop in Hollywood and buying books and then telling me, I'm never going to have time to read these. And I was thinking... <laughs> No, you have time. You just got to make time. You know, if you have time to watch a lot of movies, a lot of classic movies on TCM, you have time to read a book. So that's that actually meeting um, online friends in person is actually what kind of gave me the idea to do this online sort of community reading experience. And it's and um, but yeah, so it's a mix of people I've met and people I know, but also just you know, people online and then some people who really love the challenge will encourage their friends to join up. So the books uh, that you took a picture of, were those the books that you are planning to read yourself or they're just the prettiest ones nearby? Those are the ones I'm reading. Um, this so so basically what I do every um, for every challenge is I try to take a nice picture of a stack of books last year it was my reading stack in front of a flowering bush you know like I just try <laughs> yeah. to make it look nice and it becomes the official badge um, an official like you know image that I use on Twitter on Instagram and on um, my website for the challenge and I like to do a stack of books because it kind of gives people an idea of what books um, are relevant to the challenge, but it's not like you don't have to read any of these. You can just choose whatever you'd like as long as it fits the criteria. So how'd you pick these this time? So these are um, a mix of books that I purchased and got for review. Um, one is like a Best Actress, The History of Oscar-Winning Women. The last time I was actually even in a bookstore back in early March, I bought this book because this is one I had my eye on for a while. Um, so that was total impulse purchase. Um, and another book... Um, the, the biography on Michael Curtiz. Um, I met the author, Alan K. Rohde, and I purchased the book at Larry Edmonds Bookshop in Hollywood, and he signed it for me. And I've been meaning to get to that, so I was like, this is the summer. I'm going to get to that. <laughs> and also, I'm, I'm reading the, the book that you had mentioned earlier, The Phantom Lady um, by Christina Lane about Joan Harrison. That I, That's my first book that I'm reading for this challenge. I'm so excited for it. One of the things I do, too, is I try to include one really long book and then a couple shorter books. I, I encourage people to balance. Like if you have a coffee table book, 
um, and you have a long book, that's a great balance because if you have something that's 600, 700 pages and then something that maybe has a lot of images, it kind of, it, it it breaks it up a bit so you don't feel so overwhelmed. So tell me about your blog. What uh, Out of the Past gives a pretty clear idea. So I started um, Out of the Past and it's outofthepastblog.com and I started it in 2007 mostly because I just had a love of classic films and I had no one to talk to about it. I needed a platform just to talk about classic films. And at first it started just as something for fun. Um, and then I got really serious about it because it just became um, a passion of mine to share classic movies with people. And um, book reviews have all, always been a part of the blog. Um, so I include um, film reviews, kind of researchy type articles, um, book reviews, um, any interviews I do at the TCM festival, I include on there. I also interview, I've interviewed a lot of, um, authors who, whose books I've reviewed. So that's something that I have on there as well. I have, um, I do podcast, um, episodes with other podcasts and I have that on there. So I have a, a big mix of things. And I also have a YouTube channel where, um, I, you know, show, anytime I do a, a, a book haul, I'll show off the books, um, in a video, but I also have, um, bread carpet interviews and discussion, um, and Q and a type videos on there. So I try to try to have lots of different types of content on there for people who love classic movies. You know, a lot of people say that blogging sort of had its day and went away. And yet here it is, I think, pretty healthy in kind of the classic film area. A lot of people like you who just want to express how they feel about those films, their friends mm -hmm. at best barely tolerate having to sit through, <laughs> sit through them. So, um, Yeah, there's a great community out there. So I'm never um, lacking in readers or um, in feedback, especially on social media. And social media drives a lot of the traffic to my, to my site. And so I spend a lot of time on there as well, just you know, talking to the community and sharing my love of classic movies. So if anyone wants to sign up for the challenge, um, the sign up time um, ends on July 15th. So you can sign up now. You don't have to read six books. If you don't want to, you can read one or two and still participate. And you can just go to outofthepastblog.com and I have a big summer reading button at the top. And you can just click on that and the sign up form is there. So I highly encourage people to go and sign up. And if you don't sign up this year, sign up next year because I host it every single year. A link to the 2020 Summer Reading Challenge at Raquel Stetcher's Out of the Past blog will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Wanted Young Lady began the ad in the Daily Telegraph in November 1933. A fast-rising movie director named Alfred Hitchcock was looking for a secretary. But in The Woman Who Answered, a confident young graduate of Oxford named Joan Harrison, Hitchcock found more than just someone to book his hotels. She would become the sounding board for a filmmaker who considered smart young women like herself to be his core audience. Together with Hitchcock's screenwriter wife, Alma Revel, 
Joan Harrison would become the model for women like Margaret Lockwood in The Lady Vanishes and Joan Fontaine in Rebecca, a collaborator on his scripts, and finally, the first woman producer in Hollywood since Silent Days. Christina Lane not only tells the story of this half-forgotten figure in Golden Age Hollywood, but her biography, Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock, shines a fresh light on one of the legendary directors. Not an easy task with someone as written about as Hitch. I spoke with Christina Lane at her home in Miami, where she teaches film and interactive media. Joan Harrison was born into, you know, this family of, well, she was born into a family of leisure in Guilford, Surrey, outside of London, and she really could have chosen to live a life of leisure. Her parents certainly had that vision for her, and yet she wanted something more for herself. She really saw herself as a career woman and wanted to go into the newspaper business, at least that's uh, one of the stories that she tells about herself. And she uh, was really interested in crime fiction and true, uh, true crime, really interested in literature, and went to Oxford, went to the Sorbonne, and eventually applied for this position to be Hitchcock's secretary. And then, you know, soon uh, they both realized that she didn't have very good secretarial skills, but she did have this knack for storytelling and actually just these wonderful skills for screenwriting and eventually producing. And it was wonderful that they were collaborating uh, well together from such an early, basically a very early stage. Within a few weeks, he had assigned her the role of story uh, script reader, you know, and story editor. Yeah, you tell um, an amusing story of how she saw there were a hundred young women lined up to be his secretary and immediately made her way to the front of the line, which right there, that's the qualification is she found a way to game the system. Yes, you're right. I mean, I think that that is a very telling story that she, uh, she did. She was really ambitious, ambitious. And in terms of that story about her kind of making her way to, to the studio and then finding that she was at the back of the line of whether it was dozens of of uh, young women waiting to meet him or a hundred women she saw that she might not get to meet him at all for this interview so she was pretty uh, ingenious in terms of making her way to the front of the line and then and then just making her way not just to to being selected but kind of having lunch with him right there on the spot and convincing him that they were like-minded in so many ways it's not that female protagonists hadn't existed in Hitchcock's films before. I mean, the, you know, blackmail, for instance, is pretty much centered on Annie Andre's, Andre's character. Um, but in those next few films to follow after she came to work for him, they really took a turn toward being focused on the female protagonist, maybe a little bit because she's, undervalued by all these official men they're all going around being you know very important policemen and things like that and she doesn't have a a defined role in that same way so she can kind of work around it as Joan had worked around becoming Hitchcock's secretary right and I do think that those qualities that Joan had made their way into um, the characters that they were developing and that they made their way onto the screen relatively quickly because she, as a person, was quite um, shrewd. You know, she was very savvy. She was someone who was likable, but also strong and determined and uh, independent. And so she um, she was 
you know, growing up into kind of a modern woman, as many of her peers were, and I think that she found a way to, to essentially kind of project that onto the screen so that women who were in the seats, you know, saw themselves on the screen and, um, and, and in a way saw, um, saw themselves as multidimensional, right, you know, and the Hitchcock female characters began to change at the same time that she came on board. Well, yeah, tell us about, uh, I don't know, just pick one of the ones that follows in that period and kind of walk us through how she evolved that character. So I think that a great example is is Young and Innocent, the film Young and Innocent. And in Young and Innocent, you see uh, the, the the character played by Nova Pilbeam is is truly a teenager, and yet she's quite ahead of her years, and she's precocious, and she wants adventure, and she's the daughter of you know a policeman, so she's both uh, wanting to kind of rebel against the law, but also she kind of carries a sense of moral good, you know, and leadership. So she's conflicted. And yet she actually wants to kind of lead the, the, the investigation. And so uh, I think that that's one example of a story that Joan Harrison actually brought to Alfred Hitchcock and was dying to make and convinced him to make and then had a great hand in developing the material uh, so that the character does become, I think, in, in a sense, uh, made in, you know, in Joan's image. And um, and then of course the actress Nova Pilbeam brings her own to the you know to the character so that there's a lot that she can fill in as well. Right. Um, well, let's talk about I mean how they work together. I mean Hitchcock worked with a lot of writers collaboratively. They'd get the screenplay credit, but we all knew in the end that it was a Hitchcock film. Um, and two of the, two that he worked with was his his wife, Alma Revel and Joan and how, how did they develop stories? Yeah. So this is, I think one of the important, um, you know, important ways to think about Hitchcock is that he obviously made a mark on all of his films and is really important as a creator at the same time as all of his work shows the importance of collaboration. And he was strongest when he was working with collaborators that were also very strong. And when he also had a team that could support him. And the greatest example of that is is his wife, who Alma Revel was in the film business before Hitchcock was and, and helped um, train him in many ways in terms of editing and thinking about storytelling and characterization. And then um, Hitchcock and Alma basically formed this interesting tri triangle when Joan Harrison came along and Joan was trained, I think, by Alma. This is one of the things I found in my own research is that Alma and Hitchcock had developed something of a private code of um, techniques in terms of translating their early kind of conception of um, what they thought a plot might look like and, you know, an early treatment they would essentially develop their notion of what that treatment would, you know, would eventually become on the screen through these small, you know, uh, screenplay codes. And so they, they would work that through, through conversation. And then Joan became a part of that conversation. And this gets minimalized, I think, in the biographies that we've seen and a lot of the um, tellings, right? And, and, and partly because it is domestic work, it's work that took place around the 
you know, dinner table and around, um, you know, lunch and tea and in the evenings. And yet it is the most important work in terms of the creative uh, conception of, of the films of, of Hitchcock and his team. When you describe that, uh, I mean, a typical work day tended to be sort of, you know, frittering it away during the day with Hitchcock telling stories and then they'd all repair back to his house to, you know, for drinks and then the real work would get done. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people that worked with him would look back, you know, uh, reflect back on the day or the last few months and they wouldn't be able to tell you exactly when the work was, you know, was done, was finished, but it was in those in-between times, um, and, and in the past, I think that's one reason why Hitchcock was given so much credit is because it was assumed that he was basically kind of conducting the orchestra, right? And that the ideas were coming out of um, kind of coming out of his genius and then everyone else was almost transcribing them. Um, and yet, really, the truth is that they were coming out of the collaboration and in many ways, other uh, participants were coming up with great ideas and then they and then they were getting put onto paper well it's interesting you talk about uh i think it's go my british has started uh, under Mal- michael balkan and the you know the various genres that the stu- that the studio planned to make films in one of the genres was Alfred Hitchcock pictures. Right. You know, it already was, you know, what a Hitchcock picture was, was defined, you know, really early uh, in terms of someone's career compared to a lot of other people. I mean, you know, John Ford spent a lot of time not making Westerns before he was John Ford, I make Westerns. Right. And one of the things I think that you see in this is everybody sort of internalized what the business of the Hitchcock Corporation essentially was, you know, that the Hitchcock picture was a thing and Alma, Joan and Hitch all understood what that thing was and could safeguard it against people trying to turn it into something else in the process. Yes, that is true. Yes. And, and there were definitely other people, you know, in that it was a rather broad, I guess, orbit um, with people that were there in those early days who were helping to shape that and and make sure that it didn't kind of go astray. Uh, and the serial comic thriller, you know, is, is now kind of the label that a lot of those films are given in terms of a genre or a brand. But it's an interesting way of thinking about the, the way that it, it was essentially a franchise that was formed very early on. And then later, in later decades, Hitchcock would find that if that he if he lost his way, he could return then to that formula um, to kind of regain his audience. Well, yeah, and after a certain point, I mean, I think of something like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is his attempt at a screwball comedy, and it just doesn't work. And part of the right. reason is it's just it's in the wrong genre. It's not what his his skills are, and it lacks it lacks the things that allow him to bring out those little moments that make the audience go, aha. <laughs> You know, that those moments of recognition, the windmills are going the wrong way, that are so central to our enjoyment of his films. And right. If, if a story doesn't give him opportunities for that, he's not Hitchcock. Exactly. Right, right. But one of the things I did want to do, you know, with, with the book on Joan Harrison was also understand that people like Joan Harrison, who was there on the ground floor, um, you know, then when essentially when she then goes on to develop a career of her own and she made films that 
might have characteristics, you know, that were um, similar, basically just kind of kept getting what tamped back down into the Hitchcock mold. So that rather than suggest that she had helped build his career or helped build those genres, you know, those those characteristics, um, she was just being kind of squeezed back down. Oh, this is this is the way that Harrison is like Hitchcock, rather than flipping. Yeah that script right and saying well no this is the way that uh, Harrison helped um, brand Hitchcock you know yeah and I think um, I mean if you look at in the post-war period both of their work taking that form and making it you know darker and more psychological she kind of does it first really I mean Phantom Lady and things like that are a few years before the strangers on a train and and things like that that you see as the the deeper po- to me they're the deeper post-war Hitchcock films not to slight how much fun earlier ones are right I, I mean just to speak to Phantom Lady for a moment it does seem as though she, she that that film for whatever kind of quirks it has you know it was it's so well uh, it's so deep and it's so well thought through that she'd almost been that had been brewing for quite a long time right you know it, it it's well, um, it's well developed, and it suggests that she had been basically thinking about that female protagonist and the way that you could you could develop some of the reversals that happen in that film and the the universe of that film for many many years. So that when she finally got the opportunity to take some more freedom, she was ready. Not least that the heroine is a secretary. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how she was perceived in Hitchcock's orbit. I mean, it's not like she was denied credit per se. As you point out, she was actually the first person to have two screenwriting nominations in the same year, um, the year of Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent. But um, at the same time, I mean, she does seem to have kind of been undervalued a lot of times. She, you know, she was the in-house talent versus when they brought in a Ben Hecht or a Robert Sherwood or whoever. Um, so yeah, how was, how was she viewed? Yeah. And I think that is actually a good, a good distinction. The fact that she was in-house could lead to her being lower on the hierarchy or marginalized. And so in a lot of the coverage of Joan Harrison in the late 1930s or the early 1940s, she would be referred to as Hitchcock's secretary or his assistant. And she was seen as part of the family because she did travel with Hitchcock and Alma and their daughter Patricia to, you know, um, Switzerland or or Paris or Italy, you know or Rome and so she was seen as more of an extension of them rather than her own as kind of a, a solo artist. So that what that meant if she's referred to as secretary, you know what that meant is that even though she may be therefore presented as something of a historic um, kind of bold achievement once she arrives in Hollywood and begins to win these Oscar nominations there's always that um, kind of burden or that extra um, extra kind of label that she has to struggle against because she had interesting media coverage she learned how to brand herself as the mistress of suspense and she was part of the academy actually um, just in terms of the leadership earlier than most women would have been so she had a certain level of prestige 
but it always came with something of a price. Well, and also, I mean, just in terms of the Hitchcock her her position in the Hitchcock family as such, which it's not unreasonable to say that she had one because as you say there are all these pictures of them out, you know, publicity pictures taken at this or that restaurant. And often she's sitting closer to Hitchcock than Alma is. Yeah. Uh, and there was definitely, I mean, you suggested Alma even kind of, you know, fed, let him feed his fantasies or encouraged him to feed his fantasies. I mean, he, you know, we presume that he was never intimate with Joan or -hmm. much of anybody. Um, But at the same time, I mean, she kind of belonged to him in that period. She was on his arm metaphorically. Alma let him sort of play out the life of one of his characters in a sense with, you know, with Joan close by. Yes. I think that is such an interesting dynamic because she was, as you, um, as you say, these photographs are so, I don't know, colorful, you know, suggesting that Joan Harrison was his leading, you know, right, in some ways his leading lady. And you're right that he does get to play out these fantasies of being a leading man um, in these glamorous settings, out to dinner and out at, at, you know, kind of um, 21. And yet Alma is off to the side and she's often looking very demure. So originally I was thinking about this in terms of uh, her being in a marginal, kind of a marginal position. But the more that you really study their relationship, it seems as though she certainly had plenty of power and enough self-consciousness to know that this was a way that she could position Hitchcock to lead his own, you know, kind of fuel that fantasy life. And that she didn't see Joan as much of a threat, partly because they were friends and collaborators. I'm sure it was uncomfortable uh, because she did have a sense that Hitchcock had something of an attraction, you know, to to Joan, who I suggest was the first Hitchcock blonde. But I think that she also knew that she could play around with this enough, right? That that she could um, maintain her position. Alma could maintain her own position of authority. Hitchcock and she were a, a close couple. And then in the mid-40s, Joan decides to go on her own. And that's the moment when she becomes, you know, as Universal Publicity says, the first uh, producer since Lois Weber, which is back in the, not just the silent era, but the fairly early silent era, late teens and early 20s. Um you know, do we know anything about, I mean, did Hitchcock, did he encourage that? Was he offended by that at first? Did he just regard it as inevitable? Probably all of those things, you know, from, from what I can see from the inside, uh, through the inside scenes, it looks like he, he did feel that it was inevitable that eventually Joan would try to head out on her own. And he mentored women to, um, to a certain degree um, for that purpose. You know, he really did encourage uh, women along, especially I think later you can see evidence of this. So he wished obviously the best for um, for his colleague. I think that he felt that it was happening sooner than he would have liked. So he did go to David O. Selznick and he he kind of pled, you know, pled with Selznick to pay Joan more money. He was really upset for a, a spell, a couple of months, and John Houseman is a, wit- a witness to this because John Houseman was working there at the time. And and remembers having to try to calm calm the the waters, but 
and I think Harrison did have a bit of a difficult time leaving that fold, but the assumption for a while has been, or the, the assumption along the way has been that that created a rift between Hitchcock and Harrison, and that there was maybe six or eight years where they didn't really keep contact, and that there was tension, and the truth is that they, they got over that very quickly, Hitchcock got over that, and they were really in close contact, and that they consulted with each other you know, over their films, and Harrison remained a part of that family. All right, so let's talk about her her producing career. Um, I mean, she really is going in the Hitchcock model in a lot of ways. Again, the, these films with, you know, suspense films with the female protagonist, a certain amount of mystery, a lot of dark, you know, what we would eventually call noirish not only stories, but photography and all of that. Um, she teams up in a number of them with Robert Siadmak, who is about as close to a substitute Hitchcock as you could have asked for in that time. Right. Uh, very much expressionist in his outlook. And also, I mean, you mentioned the film, relatively little, little known of his, but one that uh, kind of got everybody's attention, a B-movie called Fly By Night. That is a complete 39 steps, you know, ripoff as so many B-movies were then because you could do screwball comedy and a thriller in the same thing. But it's very well done for what it is and, and has a really, you know, what you would call a crackerjack ending back then. Um, so, you know, a, a good choice for sort of continuing the sort of things that she was doing. Yes. And I, I do think they got along, you know, famously. They did uh, work well together and they had a similar visual, you know, um, they had a similar vision, I would say. So when it came to Phantom Lady, it was Harrison that developed the Cornell Woolrich novel. Uh, along the lines of the female um, protagonist, meaning that it, initially the secretary was not even a secretary. She was a girlfriend, you know, had, had very little to do with the story. But uh, Harrison kind of conceived of this as a different direction. And then actually at Universal, when Universal agreed to make, the, make Phantom Lady and, and bring Harrison on as producer, initially she hadn't even selected um, Siadmak. She was going to go with Andre de Toth as, you know, um, a first right. choice, right? But she was told she needed to go with Siadmak because he was already on board at Universal. And that didn't trouble her because she was happy to have Siadmak and they made a great team. So she made a number of different thrillers like this uh, throughout this period. I don't know. What else do you think are the highlights of, of the films that she produced in this time? You know, I think it's um, it's interesting because partly they all line up really nicely together, right? You know? <laughs> so that if you're if you're ready to to treat yourself, I suggest that you you know you kind of watch a whole bunch of them. Um, but I think that notable are ride ride the pink horse, right? Which um, she she produced with Robert Montgomery, and he stars as Lucky Gagan, um, and that's a wonderful film. As well as they won't believe me, which is a little bit hard to to find, but really well worth watching. Starring Robert Young. That's actually one I remember my sisters and I watching it when we were probably, you know, like 14, 12, and 10 or something like that. And it was on TV. And I won't spoil the ending, but a particularly 
dark, ironic ending, and we're all just like, oh my god, I can't believe that! Oh, you can't yeah. do that in a movie! Yeah, and that is, you know, the, the, the surprise at the end is notable, and the other thing I think that gets lost in that is that you have Susan Hayward and Janet Greer in these terrific, you know, side roles, basically, uh, kind of playing, um, playing back and forth behind behind Robert Young's performance. So that even there, you have really interesting female characters that could have just been kind of tossed off as femme fatale characters or just kind of these disposable women um, who are in service to the plot. But the truth is that they're pretty interestingly de- developed. And there's a good part, um, you talk about uh, when they're first talking about casting Jane Greer and and she apparently for whatever reason was sort of made up with jet black hair and you know kind of almost cartoonishly dark and Harrison immediately sensed that she should just lighten up the hair and look more normal and if yes. she did a better actress would emerge <laughs> yes yeah you're right I, that is right with Jane Greer she was uh, showing her talent as a star maker and as someone who really was attuned to women's um, what they were, what they could be, right? And and that she did suggest that Jane Greer lighten up her hair and kind of change her attire, of course, to look a little bit more like Joan Harrison herself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, and and um, and Greer attributes this change to helping her get the role in Out of the Past, which came, you know, after after they won't believe me. But I think these are minor things that actually really matter a great deal that Joan hasn't really been credited with. Well, yeah, you you talk about, I mean, throughout her whole career, she's shaping stories using fashion, using, you know, the kind of props that women will handle in the course of a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just these kind of little things, but using them to reveal character very effectively. Yes, and that is so true. Oftentimes with costume or wardrobe and just, you know, they may be playing with very kind of cliche, you know, light and dark, right? But there'll always be a twist to it so that there's more nuance than you would think. Um, And of course, Rebecca, just jumping back to the films that Harrison made with Hitchcock, Rebecca's a great example of how Harrison worked that script so hard because she worked on it for 18 months that she really delved into the idea of investing objects, you know, with personality and how you could um, focus on the domestic, you know, in the atmosphere to, to bring out what it was like really to be a woman um, haunted inside a house, which was one of her famous, uh, sorry, which was one of her favorite themes. Right. Well, and that's a good example. I mean, Rebecca in the book is a bit of a cipher and how you turn that into a role for an actress, let alone the actress who has to carry the movie to a large extent, because, the movie, you know, it's about the wife that we never see and the husband that we only kind of see. I mean, he's somewhat a re- of a remote character, and what he's th- certainly what he's thinking is a bit remote. Um, so, developing, I mean, she she put a lot of work and and some back and forth with Selznick, who was against it at first, into really shaping the other girl, as she's called, Mrs. De Winter. 
uh, into into a believable character when she doesn't even have a name. Right. Yeah, I do think Rebecca is a really good example uh, with the character of the the second Mrs. De Winter, so to speak, with Joan Fontaine's character of the way that Joan Harrison worked on, you know, f- kind of female identification and the idea of that female subject. Um, so, you know, with just such depth and she initially wanted to make that character in Rebecca much more feisty and much more, um, you know, just a kind of assertive and David O'Selznick would not have any of that. Even, even when Harrison was still in England, you know, before she even came to the United States, she was making the case that she wanted to write that character with more assertiveness and, um, Selznick kind of, through Hitchcock, they were having these arguments back and forth about that character. And she won some of these fights, but really not very much. And it may well be that Selznick was right, you know, because he wanted to stay uh, faithful to the to the source material and to the novel. But it's interesting that Harrison, no matter what film she was working on, this was something she was devoted to. Well, and I think it, it works in Rebecca that Joan Fontaine's character is – just feisty enough. You know, there's enough of a spine to her that, you know, if she's going to, she's going to be able to get through the third act fight. She's not just going to be roll, you know, Mrs. Danvers isn't just going to roll over her. But at the same time, the story is about her being, you know, just intimidated and, and may, you know, made to feel smaller and, and less consequential in her own life. So, yeah. 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 All right. Mm-hmm. So let's, t- I mean, let's just talk about her in this time period, the the later days of, with Hitchcock and Hollywood, and then uh, going into her producing career. I mean, she's, she's very, she's a popular pers- person on the social circuit, um, has friendships with a number of important figures, affairs with some of them, Clark Gable, kind of mm-hmm. surprising, um, you know, seems seems a little bit of a different world from her, you know, from some of these other, uh, you know, guys that she knows there. Erwin Shaw, the novelist, is one that she was involved with for a long time. Hausman, I think you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so an active life. Um, and she's also, I mean, I interviewed Donna Rifkind, who did the book about Salka Vertel and her circle and the European emigres and all of that. And yeah. Joan's involved in that as well. Yes. Yes. So Joan was definitely immersed in the world of the European emigres and kind of that intellectual society, but also um, the anti-fascists that were in Hollywood and who were very... Um, you know, involved in, she was just very involved in the creative community and would spend a lot of time in Salka's circles. And she was interested, I think, in kind of political progressivism more than she's been, more than has been understood. Which is particularly interesting since she's in partnership with Montgomery, Robert Montgomery at one point, who is, you know, somewhere to the right of John Wayne and Adolf Manjou. But uh <laughs> Yeah, it's actually fascinating to me that Joan, given that she was really encircled by left-leaning writers and by these progressive artists and intellectuals, that she would spend such a long, you know, three to five, maybe six years, actually, with Robert Montgomery in a 
in a um, creative partnership with Montgomery, who was so right leaning. Um, and it seems like there were probably several reasons, several reasons for that. Partly they just saw things the same way creatively. And partly she may have seen him as somewhat of a protector in the industry. Right. It probably didn't hurt her to be, you know, that Montgomery basically gave her a, an okay. Um, but also they may just have been good at compartmentalizing it. You know, they, they, they lived in the pre Twitter era. You didn't have to say everything to everyone. So. Correct. Yes. Yes. And I think a lot of people at that time in Hollywood were, were doing that, right. We're compartmentalizing. Um, and so they weren't dissimilar from some colleagues, but they, I think that from my sense of Montgomery as a person, he definitely compartmentalized a lot. So. Yeah. All right. So, uh, she gets into TV early on. Uh, Lou Wasserman is interested in getting his clients into TV and eventually taking over Universal and all that stuff. Back in the day, she and Hitchcock had talked about doing the radio series Suspense, which eventually happened without them. But now they've basically come to TV to do something similar with Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And how did he enlist her back into his world? Right. So she was doing a television series called Janet Dean, a registered nurse in New York, uh, which lasted about 39 episodes and was an interesting, you know, an interesting series, but was not really successful. And, and back on the West Coast, it was it was Lou Wasserman that suggested to Hitchcock that Joan may be the perfect person to be a, a producer to, to run the Hitchcock um present series. And I think at first, really, Hitchcock was a, a bit doubtful. And I'm not exactly sure why. I think, you know, he had obviously thought to bring her in on various projects before and not done it. And there must have been a reason for that. And this, you know, I'm sure that this for this reason, he also wasn't quite sure he wanted to bring her in for this one. But Lou Wasserman really pushed. And I think that's because he knew, especially television being such a kind of brutal, you know, medium and the fast pace of it, that she was a, an ideal person for for this role. And she was perfect for being able to what I say, you know, certify the Hitchcock brand and make sure that every episode that came out would would run in line with uh, Hitchcock's persona. And so uh, eventually Hitchcock agreed and they um, invited her to do the show. And she was pretty down and out at the time. So I think she was very happy to join them. Well, yeah, and it's, I think it's interesting that you you show that the the TV series, I mean, a lot of people just licensed their names to things and that was it. And the TV series was very tightly wound with the Hitchcock brand. It used people you had seen in Hitchcock films, you know, sometimes big stars. Joseph Cotton did an episode and things like that. Or or it was people that were being groomed simultaneously in TV and film, like Barbara Bel Geddes. It was a tight package and a, and a, a savvy use of the Hitchcock brand. I mean, it, you know, it was an era when... People had heard of maybe three directors typically, and Hitchcock and Cecil B. DeMille were the top two. So right. um, he was very, you know, it was all well done in terms of keeping that brand unified and going. Right, right. I mean, I think people do identify the the opening, you know, sequence with Hitchcock coming out. Um, 
and to introduce the episode as the as the strongest way in which he's associated with with the series. But there are all these other ways that you're talking about in which the basically the show and his films were all part of that Hitchcock universe. And, you know, for example, Robert Block, um, obviously, who wrote the, the novel for Psycho, ha, was writing an episode about two months before, I think, the film came out. And so there's this way in which there's um, cross promotion uh, between the series and and the film. And a lot of those actors that you would think of as being classical from the classical era, right, of Hitchcock were reappearing in the television series. And and so really reminding audiences that this was truly Hitchcock. Now, an interesting thing in her life at this time, after working for Hitchcock, she goes and marries a master of suspense in Eric <laughs> Ambler, uh, you know, who's maybe a little less well known now, but I mean, was before Graham Greene or John Lacari or anybody as kind of the creator of the modern spy novel with its, you know, sort of moral ambiguities and disillusion and all those sorts of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Hitchcock never filmed one. Apparently, they didn't really get along personally when Joan tried to you know, cross-socialize her worlds, I guess. But, you know, certainly things like The Mask of Demetrius are are right up the same 40s alley as Hitchcock's film in that time. Right, that's right. And Eric Ambler really did have this reputation uh, as a spy novelist and had been growing, um, you know, like his franchise for, for decades. And he came on to write an episode First, I believe, for the Suspicion series, an episode called The Eye of Truth. And that's, um, if not how they met, then how they kind of rekindled a friendship in um, like the late 1950s. And they were really almost seen as a star couple. You know, they were kind of the couple to be around um, in Hollywood, very glamorous. They got married in San Francisco in 1958. And uh, and it was a way, I think, for, for Harrison, who had not married and she was in her early 50s uh, to kind of take a shift in her own life. But it did also just change um, the dynamics between Harrison and Hitchcock. Yeah. So she kept making, I mean, she's involved with TV movies into the mid 70s. They had moved to Switzerland, which made it a little harder to be maybe on top of things. And maybe they kind of didn't want to be at that point either. I don't know. But you know, uh, she wound up in the end having a, a substantial 40 year career in Hollywood. Yeah. What do you want to say about, you know, why this is a story we, we should know? Yeah. Well, I, I think it is uh, really critical to recognize the longevity of her career. She did, uh, you know, make films from the mid 1930s all the way into television series into the early 1970s. And there is that, basically thread in terms of her own interests, um, both visual and narrative, you know, and um, thematic interests that you can trace from the beginning all the way to the end. And also just as a kind of powerhouse, the the influence that she had uh, paving the way for, for women producers, producers in general. Um, I think that she's a, a wonderful role model and it's unfortunate that she's been forgotten in many cases that people don't, you know, she's not a household name, but she should be. And even more importantly than that, she, as I say, you know, she, she helped to create the Hitchcock that we know of today. So 
instead of us thinking of Hitchcock kind of helping to create Joan Harrison, I really like to think of it as um, Harrison helping to create Alfred Hitchcock, which is, I think, more accurate. All right. So if people wanted to see films that you think really sum up Joan Harrison's contribution, you know, like what would be the top three? I'm going to guess Phantom Lady is one. Yes. And are you, do I need to choose from Hitchcock and um, whatever you think? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you talked about her influence on like young and innocent Rebecca. So those are legit choices, but whatever you want to say. Yeah. I mean, I would say definitely Rebecca and Phantom Lady. And then I would actually steer people toward Nocturne because, yeah, I think Nocturne is really out there as something different, and it has uh, a lot of Harrison personality to it. So, I mean, just to say what that, that is, it's, what, four, 44, 46? It is. So Nocturne is 1946, and it's written by Jonathan Latimer, and uh, it uh, stars uh, George Raft and Lynn Barry. And, you know, it's just kind of quirky, but it's a lot of Los Angeles settings. It's shot on location in a lot of different places in Hollywood, and it's a lot of fun. I have not seen that one, so I'm going to I'm gonna go hunt it out, see if, if there's a nice Blu-ray or something, some way to, <laughs> to, to see it properly. Please do, please do. There will be a link in the show post for Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, The Forgotten Woman Behind Hitchcock, by Christina Lane from Chicago Review Press, as well as links to where you can order the three titles she recommended in particular. Let's go back in time to the late 1970s. A spaceship zooms across the blackness of space. Well, actually, it's the Ravel model of the Pan Am spacecraft from 2001, and space is a piece of black poster board. My friend Scott and I are trying to do special effects like the movies we've seen. 2001, Star Wars, Star Trek. Ours are... not quite as impressive. But that impulse to recreate what you've seen in science fiction movies, in 16mm, Super 8, or VHS, has existed nearly as long as the movies. In 1937 and 38, a kid named Richard Lyford had the impulse too, and made a 45-minute 16mm science fiction movie, silent because sinking sound was always the bane of amateur filmmaking, called As the Earth Turns. With model aircraft and teenagers in old age makeup, Lyford makes a pretty decent Raymond Massey, and special effects like lightning scratched into the emulsion. Richard Lyford actually went on to a career in film. He co-directed with Robert Flaherty a documentary called The Titan, Story of Michelangelo, which won an Academy Award. Now that early teenage sci-fi film has been scored by Seattle composer and music teacher Ed Hartman, and is available to watch on Amazon, a fascinating relic of DIY independent special effects filmmaking from the pre-World War II era. I spoke with Ed Hartman in Seattle about As the Earth Turns and Richard Lyford. So Richard Lyford uh, was born in 1917, uh, and which is an interesting time when you think about today's situation. And uh, he died in 1985. Uh, but Lyford 
lived in Seattle. He wrote 58 stage screenplays and had made nine films by the time he was 20. He had a 16 millimeter camera or two by the time he, he got to this one. And uh, he was a great motivator. He was a very nice guy, as far as we can tell. I've interviewed his son extensively. He was very good at motivating a lot of people to work with him. Uh, he, he could easily get 50 to 100 people involved in production. And this goes way back to when he was in pretty much in grade school. Uh, one of the first things he did, he was into, into Dracula. He loved dressing up and stuff like that. And he got very good at makeup at an early age. And he, he got a bunch of kids together, and it was kind of like the, the uh, Andy Hardy movies. Let's have a, let's have a show in the backyard. <laughs> Eventually, they, had, they put a, a theater in their basement of their house in Seattle that had 50 seats. <laughs> theater seats, no kidding. <laughs> anyway, so he's in grade school, and somehow he winds up putting together a production of Dracula. And it was so gory at the end, so over the top, that the cast got kicked out of school for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he learned how to do all this stuff and he just kept making bigger movies. And he, he was, he was already a pretty decent photographer as far as I can tell. And he, and he would make money by doing photography. He was great at graphics, which is how he did all his titles. And he, and he started having kind of a, his own uh, cast uh, develop. I relate him to Orson Welles. They had a similar trajectory in that they, they did amazing things early on. Welles, you know, kind of peaked with Citizen Kane and then really never recovered to the same level. But they, they both kind of had this early peak in their careers uh, going into things and then things got in the way. And that's a whole other story about what happened to him. But by the time he got around to this film, he really had mastered a lot. Special effects, makeup. Uh, he had actually experimented with sound, uh, which is really remarkable. Sound had been around. Uh, our film was, was made in about 1937, 38. It was out there. But it was not available to someone in Seattle, in the Pacific Northwest, with a 60-millimeter camera. Sound, early on, sound was records that were synchronized with film. So what Lifeford did experiment with at one point was dual turntables synchronized to a cat to a projector and he was pretty much spinning he was like doing early dj service with classical records now i'm i'm scoring this film as composer that's how i got involved initially and what's kind of interesting about this is i didn't know he did any of this until after i was scored half the film you can imagine what a composer thinks when you then find out that the filmmaker originally had ideas for music after you started <laughs> luckily after interviewing his family i i think i was really very very close to his original concepts because he loved dvorak stravinsky major composers and those were he had access to them so he was synchronizing this stuff by the scene and doing sound effects and the whole bit uh just like early uh you know silent films with live music that sort of thing but anyway th that little piece of information that little invention he did was what got him in uh what got disney interested in him as far as we can tell that his knowledge of technology is what propelled him into the industry more than anything but i think he would have been a tremendous fiction filmmaker and, and we do have a we don't have a lot of his early stuff some of it was a lot of it was lost which is really too bad maybe it'll turn up what we do have is as your turns, this magnificent 45-minute film that was his sort of Citizen Kane of the moment, and uh, and then a couple other really fragments, uh, a mummy-style film 
and um, a kind of a De Jekyll and Hyde that have really interesting special effects. And, you know, if you watch this film, you have to put it in the context of the 30s. It's not modern Star Wars movie science fiction. But what it is, is it shows you what was happening in Flash Gordon serials and things to come. And he was able to do this without any budget. I mean, zero pretty right. much except for what he cobbled together, you know, doing photographs and sign painting in town and, and, and being able to get a crew together. And like Wells, he had very sim the, the same people working on a number of his films. He had a Mercury Theater in, in essence. So he, he understood all of this stuff. But he was really well educated. He watched films early on, influenced by King Kong and uh, and things to come and things like that as well. Well, let's just talk about As the Earth Turns. So it's a 45-minute science fiction film, as you say, kind of in the Flash Gordon. I thought maybe of something like When Worlds Collide, yeah. kind of vein. Um, and as you say, there's a there's a certain amount of uh, Effects work, both models. Uh, it looks like he got at least behind the cockpit of an actual plane, or did he fake uh, a close-up no, of that? No, in, in that movie, he's... Okay, here, here's some of the funny details about that film. He, he was an expert at models by then. He had done a film uh, called The the Sea something or other. I can't remember his name. And it had like 50 models. There, there's a, he wrote articles about these films. In American cinematographer, you can find him, and he has detailed explanation on it. And there's a picture we have on our websites and things like that of him overseeing this huge amount of models, submarines, and stuff from that original film. So he was blowing things up with dynamite, <laughs> you know, and, uh, unbelievable stuff like that. Um, very controlled situation. Um, but he also. Uh, hey, the, I think the family kind of knew the Boeings. Uh, they were uh. in the same neighborhood. Uh, but he was able to get on Boeing Field. That's where one of the, the big scenes takes place, where they steal a plane uh, from Boeing Field, which happened when we when we watched that scene. It was about a year after somebody had actually stolen a commercial jet from Boeing Field. There was a bunch of serendipity going on. But anyway... Um, so and they got inside those, those uh, this this you know passenger jet. He had access. The family. I, I think there was a lot of heavy interest. I know he had interest in in aerospace from the, from the beginning. Uh, and in fact, in the in the war, he was hired by the American uh, by the Army Air Forces and did films. One thing to understand about this film, as great as it is, he understood his limitations very well. He did this film on a bet with a friend who said, you can't do this movie. It was based on a 1915, actually, novel. Uh, kind of a, an interesting thing itself. Uh, and and, he, and they did it. Uh, and, and the reason why we, we don't have this movie, uh, why this movie was never released, is this was the tail end of his amateur career. He was actually in the Americans, the Amateur Cinematographers League. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was a, he was a member. And so these were these were hobbies for a lot of people. But he this was industry for him. This was his film, his film school. There was no film schools at that time. So this taught him the industry uh, all on his own. Anyway, because right after he made this film, he went down to L.A. and got involved with Disney on Fantasia, Dumbo and Pinocchio. <laughs> uh that that this film never never went anywhere again and he wouldn't have you know i'm not sure he he would have 
necessarily wanted to release it at that time. I am confident that he would be very happy with what we've done with the film, because uh, that was a concern I had. I thought, boy, you know, 80 years from now, if I write something when I was a kid, is would that be okay <laughs> if somebody published it? If it's good, I'd say sure. And and again, after talking to especially his son, who knew him very, very well, uh, he, he his son said, no, he would have loved this. He loved, you know, the idea of what this film was. And he watched it over the years. Well, let's talk about the the film that he uh produced that won, or directed rather that won an oscar what sure. is that well in uh so basically his life story is he goes to uh, work for disney and then he gets drafted disney hands him his draft card i mean really <laughs> literally disney lost about 20 great people at that time later on he comes back after the war he doesn't go back to disney for whatever reason he's, he's married he gets married he has kids and stuff like that he lives in more in new york and does things like that at one point he connects with robert snyder and uh, I can't remember the other guy uh, who it was the, the early documentarian who did Nanook of the North. I mean, that's Robert Flaherty. Kind of, there you go. So basically those two guys and and Lyford collaborate on the Titan, uh, a story about Michelangelo. And uh, it was kind of worked from some previous film through World War Two that was available and they re-edited it. And, and I think Lyford probably really helped that Academy Award uh, win because of some certain scenes in there. And he was an expert editor that he learned from films like uh, as, the, uh, as Your Turns. I mean, you look at the editing in our film, and it's spectacular. It's rough. We could clean it up, but we decided early on, no, we wanted to make sure we weren't trying to pass something off. My fear is if it looked too clean, people would think, oh, it's a Hollywood movie. No, it's not. It is what it is. So how did you come into awareness and possession of this film? I'm I'm a percussion instructor as well as a composer, and uh, nowadays I'm in my studio teaching on Zoom. Nothing's really changed for me, <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, early on, many years ago, I don't know, maybe it's seven, eight, nine years ago, I taught a student, and his mother came to me uh, in, a few years ago and had seen that I was composing, and I actually had put down a a track on YouTube. I do a lot of demos on there of my music, and I'd set it to an old Buster Keaton scene. Uh, and she saw that, and she says, hey, I just uh, got involved uh, in this film estate of my great uncle. Uh, would you like to film? Would you like to score this film? And I said, sure, you bet. Anyway, that led to the film, and then I became producer, and we, we never thought this was going to be more than a family project at first. It came out pretty good, and she got into it, and we started to pitch it to film festivals. And, you know, now it's been in this absurd amount of film festivals and all these awards. And uh, and we're, we're, you know, now we're on the other side of that. And we're actually, you know, it's on Amazon. It's going to be on Turner Classic Movies in the fall. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's creating all this attention. And it's, it's a wonderful you know, project for me. It's really kind of changed my whole trajectory as from being uh, simply somebody that writes music for TV and film to actually getting into film production, which is something, ironically for me, when I was a kid, I was doing Super 8. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> I'm in my third act. I'm back to filmmaking. So, you know, who'd have thought of that to happen? We were at the uh, invited to the Seattle International Film Festival, a tremendous film festival in Seattle. It's been going on for many, many years. And uh, they did a wonderful presentation at the Egyptian Theater, a 1915 theater. I mean, just incredible. What was funny about it is I had invited some of the cast's relatives that I kind of 
thinking about a week before. Oh my God, I haven't talked to these people. And I knew some of them were out there and we got a hold of the male and female leads family. We already were connected to Richard Leifert's family, but we were able to connect to these other parts. And one of them um, was Barbara Berger's, uh, one, of his, uh, one of her nephews, who's a, a well-known writer in Seattle, uh, um, Knut Berger. He goes by Mossback. He's a he's a kind of a historian and, and he's, he's a wonderful writer. But the other the other uh, relative was Alan Holting was the male lead in this. And his family uh, was at the theater and I'm doing my Q&A afterward. And, and I get this message on, on the stage saying they have another cut of the film. Oh, my God. Now, <laughs> think about this. I don't even know if I have anywhere close to his cut. And then we find out there's another version of the movie out there. It could be 115 minutes long. I don't know. So I got a hold of that. We digitized it. As it turns out, except for about a 30-second difference of one interesting scene that was not in ours, and I kind of understand why. I didn't put it back in because it, it felt a little odd. It was almost dead on the same edit as what we had. Uh -huh. In other words, the dub he did for them was was his cut. And that made me feel great that I had edited the film. It also confirmed the edits I put in because yeah. I wasn't I mean, I, I they were pretty obvious to me, but you never really know, sure. you know, as that for me to to me to, you know, assume I know, know his edits is tough yeah. on there, especially as good as he was. The other family, uh, you know, when we talked to them. They said that his their dad, Alan Holting, in this movie had watched this movie at least once a year. And and he was kind of after the war. He was in the war, too. Their dad seemed kind of more down. You know, the war did that to a lot of people. But when he watched this film, he would lighten up. What I will say about later is he also did uh, films in the Mideast. Uh, and one of them, again, there's a lot of relationships going on right now with what's happening, was about the tsetse fly and disease. And he was he got involved with Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company. He was hired by them to do a, a number of films for them, one about water conservation, too. These were really important movies, especially the tsetse fly one. Nobody had seen movies in the 50s out in Saudi Arabia much. <laughs> and they were taking yeah. they were taking projectors and projecting them. And people just were awe-inspired by just seeing that. And then that probably saved many, many thousands of lives. So when I think about what's the most important film this guy made, that might have been it when you think about it from a humanitarian standpoint. Uh, but he also worked for Disney, uh, again, worked on Wonderful World of Color uh, in, in the 60s. And one of his shows uh, about an otter, I think it was about an otter, one of those, you know, those kid, the, the animal documentaries he did, beat out Patton on a, on a movie on TV <laughs> and, and ratings. I mean, and he was blown away. I had no idea, but it was that, that's the kind of, of uh, quality he was able to do at all times. You know, he, he really did it, but he was a behind the scenes guy. Uh, but, but I think, boy, if, if he could have continued on this thing and the, and the big question becomes, why, why do we not know who this guy is? And I, I, my best guess, based on all the research I've done, is it's really, you know, the usual things, family, all the rest of it. But I think the moment in time was World War II, which he pretty much foresees in this film. <laughs> but he winds up going to war and it pulls him out of Hollywood at the point where he would have most been part of it. The fact that he could direct, he could edit, he could act, he could do makeup, he could do sound effects. He could, uh, and he could, he could look in the camera and understood it. He, he, 
All I can tell you is he developed his own film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he knew every aspect of right. it. He had to. That was that was the only way to do it. Music in this segment is by Ed Hartman for As the Earth Turns. We'll have links in the show post for the film on Amazon and for the soundtrack recording. Or you can watch it this fall when it premieres on Turner Classic Movies. Thanks to my guests, Raquel Stetcher, Christina Lane, and Ed Hartman. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.